Hi there, and welcome to another Counterfire Media podcast. This week, we have a fantastic discussion between Faze Ismail, academic from SOAS and Goldsmith Universities and Counterfire member, and the fantastic Marxist feminist Hester Eisenstein, author of the highly recommended Feminism Seduced from Routledge books. Here's Faze and Hester. I'm with Hester Eisenstein. Uh, who is Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and also Sociology at CUNY in New York. And Hester's teaching uh, and research is focused on gender and globalisation, women and work and the sociology of gender. Thank you so much for joining us. That's a pleasure. Um, so I wanted to start off with uh, a question about the context in the US right now. Trump has obviously emboldened the far right in the US and, and elsewhere, actually, outside the US. And it seems as if this has had an effect uh, on increasing violence against women, or at least it's had the effect of emboldening misogynists. Um, uh, and in fact, this is one of the ways it seems as if the far right has um, attempted to rehabilitate itself, you know, posing as a defender of women's rights. Um, so in a sense, the question of women's rights has been weaponized, firstly, by the war on terror, which, which you've talked about in, in your book, Feminism Seduced, in Afghanistan in particular, this war is about women's rights, uh, and so on. And secondly, it's been weaponized by the far right. Um, so my question was, how do you think the left should deal with this problem? Well, that's a really big question. Um, I wouldn't say it's been weaponized by the far right. I mean, I, I, the, uh, I think what has happened is that since you know Trump uh, raved on about you know grabbing women's whatever, he has legitimized uh, misogyny in an extraordinary way, and so people are sort of coming out of the woodwork and saying things that they wouldn't have said. You know, sort of like what things that weren't said or shouldn't be said are now on the agenda again. Yeah. So, so I think women have reacted with just enormous anger. And the, you, you see it, I mean, in the, in the enormous mobilization around the recent elections, more than 100 women are in Congress now, most of them Democrats, not all. Um, and there's been this, I think people have felt the need to, to reactivate a certain kind of feminist activism because things that you took for granted, are, you can't take for granted anymore. You know, so it's like, and then there's this enormous misogynist strain that's come out. Um, so I, I think the, the good news is that there's, there's much more mobilization around a certain kind of mainstream feminism, yeah. which is women have the right to not be raped, <laughs> women have the right not to be grabbed, you know, just basic safety, you know. At the same time, yeah, as you say, that this is good news, that women have started to mobilise in a big way against Trump. So how would you sort of characterise this movement and to what extent is the movement around Me Too, for example, part of this wider movement? Because it's obviously a movement that consists of more liberal feminists, even neoliberal feminists, as well as women who actually do want to change things once and for all and think that actually the roots of sexism lie in, in the capitalist system. Yeah, I would say that the Me Too movement is a pretty mainstream movement. It's hard to know whether it's a movement or not because yeah. I just was actually, I read a paper that someone's doing uh, for a philosophy journal on Me Too as a social movement. It was very interesting kind of convoluted argument because it's only people online and only people on Twitter or whatever. And so 
who never meet, you know, but they just say, me too, me too. But it has been an extraordinary moment. I have, I have a quote from Katha Pollitt who says, it's like the French Revolution without the guillotine, you know, Harvey Weinstein and these, ma- and in some ways it's, it's, it's very hard to get your head around. You don't really know what's going on because why is there suddenly this acquiescence to looking after women when nobody cared before, you know. And, yeah. and then the, the f- a funny thing that happened, I mean, it's funny, I shouldn't laugh, but uh, around the Weinstein case, I don't have the details because one of the people who accused him um, turns out that the the blowjob that she offered was consensual. So you can't believe you're having these conversations, yeah, really. It's yeah. just embarrassing. But um, so what does it mean? I don't know. I mean, it, I think it's certainly it's a form of liberal feminism. It's about very basic women's right to bodily integrity, you know, the sort of classic agenda of, of liberal feminism. Um, but, you know, there's always this possibility of liberal feminism shading into a kind of impatience or anger with the whole system. So you don't know where it's going. It's, it's been like an explosion, like around the um, Kavanaugh confirmation. Yeah. I mean, you saw on television, I mean, women were beside themselves. You know, they were talking to Senator Flake and saying, you're not listening. And so that whole, it's, it's remarkable. It's very hard to, to know what it means. It's just been this spontaneous anger Mm-hmm. about the defense of women's bodies, you know, which is a fundamental feminist principle. So it's, it's, quite, uh, it's quite widespread. There's enormous anger. And there's also, I guess, this sense that a lot of things you thought were accomplished aren't. You know, do women have a right to bodily integrity? Probably not. Like, what? How does this happen, you know? Yeah. So um, it's kind of a swirling fast-moving thing and it's not there's no leadership it's not clear where it's going but it's been a a kind of reaction to the misogyny of Trump who basically is someone out of the 1950s in terms of his attitude toward women and sexuality Mm -hmm. Um, I mean in terms of the uh, in terms of what's been achieved, I mean, you, you just said it. It, seemed, it feels as if you know things that were achieved are now being questioned. You know, in terms of like the second wave um, women's movement, I mean, what do you think we did achieve, and what do you think um, still remains? I mean, we, we're we're talking now still, of course, about equal pay. I mean, the Equal Pay Act here was passed in 1970. We're still talking about equal pay, and it's become quite a, a big issue uh, now with the Equal Pay Commission and uh, and so on. And some progress has been made, and we saw the. I don't know if you heard about the. Strikes in in Glasgow, eight yes, eight thousand workers came out, and right, right. in solidarity also with women over equal pay. Well, I think that the I guess the argument I make is that when the women's movement made access to paid work a fundamental tenet, you know, in the nineteen seventies, um, the corporate world responded to that by really sort of splitting women into two groups very cleverly, in my opinion, because on the one hand, they said, okay, we're going to make room for X number of women in the corporate sector. You know, you'll be, you'll be able to rise and we'll recognize you and you can wear these very good looking little suits and heels and you can rise. But that's a small minority of people. And then at the same time, they have transformed the economy into a low wage economy. So you have Walmart and you have all these McDonald's, very low wage jobs. And at the same time, uh, under Clinton, we abolished welfare, as he used to say, welfare as we know it, which meant that you took away the safety net. And it's pretty clear that that was part of a strategy to 
create a pool of cheap female labor. So you have, for the first time, an enormous class difference between women um, and the uh, the wing of women who got into the corporate sector, including myself, people who got into academe and so forth, was an enormous achievement, but it's a minority achievement. It's really a small number of people. And at the same time, you've opened the market for this very low-wage economy with the safety net eliminated, in effect. So um, that's why I say this demand, you know, the liberal demand for women working I didn't anticipate that women would be working for nothing or for very low wages for terrible conditions, you know. People people often say that um, the working class has changed um, to the point where it's no longer recognisable, you know, with a, with a view to saying, you know, perhaps the working class doesn't exist. I mean, when I think of the working class, I think of these women, in fact. Sure. I think of those women who are working in Walmart. I think of um, women, you know, black migrant women in the global south working in factories and things like that. Um, um, I mean, what, how would you say the working class has changed? Is that how you would characterize the working class? Well, you know, conventionally, you know, in the 30s, the working class was factory workers and um, people who eventually were easy, easier to organize because they were all in one place. Um, so now with deindustrialization and the creation of export processing zones, you have um, a working class that's all over the world and that's working in extremely dangerous conditions if you look at Bangladesh and places like that. I mean, I think scholars like T.T. Bhattacharya argue that you, you have to broaden your notion of the working class. You, you know, that mental image of people in factories working in the Ford, you know, the Flint strike and so forth, all that kind of mythological history of the working class. You have to re rework it and say, first of all, it's probably majority women, right? now. You know, women are getting more jobs in the third world than men, I think. So, but what does it look like? I mean, you have to look at all these different workplaces, not just factories, but hospitals, daycare, um, you know, all the, all the different, and, and a lot of it is privatized, like nannies and in individual households. How do you organize people like that when you, you see the brutality that they're subjected to in places like Saudi Arabia and Los Angeles, you know, yeah. Yeah. and what recourse do they have? So really the working class has to be, re, you have to have a different image of it. It's more dispersed, um, but it's still people doing the work of the world, you know. I thought what was very interesting was um, in Feminism Seduced, I thought it was very bold as well because you were talking about structural adjustment, which has been written about, but you were talking specifically how this has affected women. And w would you say that those same types of uh, effects and features of the uh, of the global economy are, are, are still valid in terms of their effect on women? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at how, you know, that whole period of structural adjustment, you know, when I was writing, it was I was writing about this third world uh, conditions in Africa and South America. And so as the book came out, the structural adjustment moved to places like Greece, you know, and started being first world, so-called yeah. first world uh, conditions. And Overall, it's, it has affected women because it's affected the public sector. I mean, it's the things that women rely on, healthcare, education, and also access to public service jobs. All of those things disproportionately affect women. So women are now doing triple, triple what they had to do before. And the safety net is really being withdrawn quite drastically. So you're expected to pay 
for hospitals, you're expected to pay for it. You know, education's being privatized. So the whole public sector, A, has shrunk enormously, and B, has been very delegitimized ideologically. So you can't, it's hard to appeal to, in the way you could to say, look, women need daycare, women need good schools. Women need health care. I mean, not just women, men also, but um, it's the privatization has gone very, very far. Neoliberal feminists have, have, a, have, a, have a serious problem here <laughs> in terms of the contradictions, because on the one hand, they will argue that women need to be in higher positions and, and, and that there's a certain level of e equality that they will argue for. On the other hand, they um, push a, a system that precisely outsources these things, outsources social reproduction, factories in, in terrible working conditions, in lower uh, wage work and so on. How do you think they sort of overcome that contradiction or, or how do feminists or Marxist feminists on the left point these out? Well, it's very interesting because I was trying to get my class to talk about what they think feminism is now, you know. They have a very clear idea that feminism is people like Beyonce and Oprah, and so I said to them, but don't you think there should have been a more collective approach? You know, here I am, a 70s feminist, hopeless. And, you know, they, they are very convinced by this notion of, well, you become very, very wealthy. And then like Oprah, you open these schools in Africa. And so you're giving back. And the, the whole notion that the public sector is being decimated is not visible to them. You know, it's because it's, and if you look, I mean, the, there's a very good new book, Catherine Rot Rottenberg's new book, Neoliberal Feminism is excellent on this. And she basically says what feminism is now portrayed as in the, in the media is, how can I balance work and life? How can I have, you know, beautiful children and at the same time be the head of my corporation? And there's absolutely no issue of social justice or of collective, um, um, of a collective sensibility. It's like going out the window. It's like feminism means I'm going to have a corporate job and I'm going to have really a very elegant wardrobe. And, um, you know, I might in my spare time open a charity or, you know, so it's, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, it just obscures everything that the women's movement was basically fighting for, I would say, yeah. you know, yeah. and it's a seduction of the individual achiever, you know, yeah. how can I develop myself? And so feminism becomes a personal achievement of an individual uh, striver. Yeah, yeah. How did that happen? I mean, how did that trajectory <laughs> Well, I think happen? I always say, don't ever underestimate American capitalism. They are so smart, you know, the leadership. And I think they saw this wave coming because it was a very serious social movement, you know. And if you think about the agenda of uh, second wave feminism, it was an enormous yeah. agenda. It was daycare and it was um, women's health and it was sexual freedom and options and all these it's just an enormous I always say if they if those agenda items had been achieved we'd be talking about a complete social revolution nothing would be untouched the family the state the military you know war would be abolished but that didn't happen <laughs> so I think that they the corporate leadership of the states sort of saw this wave coming I mean, I'm, this is a fantasy because I have never interviewed any of these people, so I kind of make up what I think they were thinking. But, you know, if it had become very unstoppable, um, it would have been dangerous for capital, I really do think, you know, for private property, for the whole structure. So it was like 
the the media and uh, various um, intellectuals and stuff created took from that agenda you know, that enormous agenda of changes. They were like, okay, we're going to emphasize paid work for women and individual development. So sexuality is okay. Sexuality, I, I argue, it isn't threatening. You know, so be a lesbian, I don't care. Be trans, I don't care. But don't challenge the social structures. You know. So they kind of reshaped, they very cleverly reshaped feminism into being about individual achievement, individual competitiveness. And so then you have figures like Hillary Clinton, you have, uh, who represent, you know, that, that kind of, and it, it, can go, it can go along with a little, you know, tincture of social justice, but not too much. Don't challenge the structure that is going to keep those women working in those factories and the Walmarts and the big corporations on low wages. Right. That's the thing that right. yeah, can't right. be challenged. One thing that's been very much taken up in the academy is uh, the whole notion of intersectionality. Mm. I suppose the strength of it is trying to understand the intersections between uh, race, class uh, and gender and that people have multiple identities and so on. In another sense, it perhaps doesn't go beyond that sort of description, which in a sense it, we all knew. I mean, it's it's sort of obvious that people have multiple multiple identities uh, and so on. I'm... I'm, I'm um, uh, sort of simplifying massively here, of course. Um, what do you think are uh, the sort of strengths and limitations? Well, I was part of a symposium on this subject with Barbara Foley in uh, Science and Society. And what I found myself saying was, there's the good news and the bad news. And the good news is, I think, the overwhelmingly white quality of women's studies in the States was very offensive to black academic women. And they were right to challenge um, the paradigm and the whiteness, the whiteness of, of academic feminism. And so I give them full credit, people like Bell Hooks, people like um, Patricia Hill Collins and so forth, yeah. who said, hello, you know, you're not accounting for the experience of black women, you're not accounting for the experience of Hispanic women and so forth. So that's a great achievement. Mm. And they know. were saying that from, from the way second back. wave. Yeah, they were saying back. that from way back. They really were from day, from day one, actually. Um, but it wasn't accommodated in the academy. And I remember I would go to women's studies conferences and they would be lily white. It was astounding, you know, for for years and years. So the fact that now I think Barbara Ransby has become the, the um, head of women's, the National Women's Studies Association shows things haven't really changed and it's, it's wonderful. Um, but um, what I, my critique, I, I did, a, I mentioned that I... Um, had to do an assessment of um, the, the women's studies, women's and gender studies program at a certain Eastern University, and uh, what they had instituted uh, was intersectionality as a requirement for every single course, including calculus. <laughs> no, I'm exaggerating, but we, it was like insane. It was yeah. like. What is this? It just became this mechanical thing. You know, you're going to mention race, class, disability, gender, da da da. So, but the other critique, which is more profound, which is that it obscures class. It really does get you away from saying the fundamental division in society is a class division. And if you intersectionality kind of fuzzes that over, you know, and I think I see that in students that sort of, they, because in America, you know, in America, we don't, there is no such thing as class. In America, everybody's in the middle class, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you're trying to teach the, the concept of class and intersectionality 
in some ways gets in the way of the clarity of that discussion. The talk that you did at the conference was uh, on thinking about uh, solidarity. What does solidarity mean in practice amongst feminists, amongst women, um, but also women across borders? Well, you know, this is the challenge I think that we face. And I just started thinking about this, so I I really don't have any answers, but I have a number of questions. The mobilization of women around the world has been extraordinary. Things have been happening, you know, the not one more movement in Argentina and the um, the abortion bill in Ireland and um, the sp- the women's international women's movement in Spain, where they had five million women on the streets, yeah, extraordinary. extraordinary. So there's there's a mobilization going on around women's issues in response to the increasing violence of this kind of rising neo-fascism. You know, where this women are being murdered, like that Ukrainian. I don't remember her name, but this Ukrainian journalist started exposing corruption, and they find her raped and dead. It's like what, you know? Yeah, so. Yeah. I think that there's an poten- enormous potential for solidarity among women across class around gender issues. But um, this is a very big project because you think about, if you want to be cynical, you say, well, okay, the upper middle class woman in Los Angeles and her nanny, you know, from Guatemala. Yeah. I mean, are they going to have solidarity with one another? I don't think so. So when you come back to the issue of class. So I just think it's, I think it's, I'm raising it because I think there's this really big potential for, and of course the International Women's Strike, which has been very successful, and which talks about a feminism for the 99%, you know, which I think is a wonderful slogan. It's really saying most women have a lot of things in common. So, but how we will act that out, how we will express that, and then in what kinds of circumstances can it, can it have political valence? And then there's this very troubled question about our male brothers brothers in the struggle. You know, some women say very extreme things, like all men are predators. Well, they're clear, it's clearly not true. But so how can feminist men help? What is their role? What would that look like? All kinds of unanswered questions. And I suppose the final question is, what do you think the sort of prospects are then for, you know, we, we still live in Trump's America, <laughs> you know, and, and the rise of right-wing governments, um, you know, gaining, gaining electoral gains and uh, gaining strength. And um, what, what do you think the prospects are for um, strengthening, I suppose, a, a women's movement or or movements that can come together, I suppose, against austerity, against uh, the wars, against imperialism and so on. Well, I think what you say is exactly right. In other words, I think the women's movement now, and this has been happening, I think, has to embrace such a range of issues, like the migrant caravan, you know, this insane threat that Trump has made of this migrant caravan. And, and, you know, we, we observe that as the caravan moves north, the People in Mexico are feeding them and giving them water and giving them medical attention. It's so moving, yeah. you know. So I think it's we have to sort of say again, every issue is a feminist issue. You know, migrant rights are a feminist issue. Ending war, ending imperialism is a feminist issue. So you can't have that narrow scope of what feminist issues are, which is sexuality, contraception, you know, abortion, da da da, has to very broaden itself to a, to a real left agenda. 
anti-racist, you know, free, freedom for all sexual identities. Um, the, of the climate, of course, as well. And of course the yes. world. Is the world going to even survive? So climate change is a feminist issue, you know. So I think, it's the, I think for, for women organizing, the broader the agenda, the more we can have allies, the more we can really um, rise up against this very dangerous time. Um, and it's not acceptable for um, the women's movement to to turn its back, for example, on climate change. Um, now, how you do that is complicated, but I think people are working on it. I think people are thinking very profoundly, like, where does this fascist move come from? Who's feeding it, you know? And how would you win people away from it? Like, how can you reach people and say, listen, this is not in your interest? Yeah. You know. Yeah. So strategic alliances between different movements. Absolutely. And putting women at the forefront of those movements as well, all kinds of movements. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much, Hester. My That's pleasure. Funny.